HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I'm your host here on Heritage Radio Network for this half hour. And today's show is being sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. On A Taste of the Past, you know, we always take you on a bit of a culinary history journey, uh, things that are... Um, that have made history a long time ago and things that have made history even this afternoon. Um, so today I thought that we would, being summertime and the grills are out, we would do a little more barbecue talk. And we have uh, came across a brand new book, and I'm sure those of you who are interested in barbecue have seen it too, and it's called Planet Barbecue, and it's by Stephen Reichland. Stephen, who is um, uh, an author of more than two dozen books, and I would say probably 20 of them being barbecue books, um, he is an author, a journalist, and TV host of Barbecue University, um, and on PBS, which he's, he's the person who was credited with inventing the beer can chicken, but we're going to find out if that's really true or not, you know, where you stick that beer can up a chicken and put them on the grill and have it self-basted. But Stephen has traveled the world uh, searching out barbecue, and this new book that he's come up with, Planet, Planet Barbecue, is just terrific. It ju- it gives barbecue recipes from, from over 55 countries um, around the world, and we now he's going around the country telling people about his book, and we tracked him down, and we have him on the phone with us today to talk to us. Stephen, are you there? I'm here. How Hi, I'm fine, thank you. Well, congratulations on this new book. It is absolutely spectacular. 
Thank you very much. Uh, how many barbecue books total have you have you written? Well, this is the eighth of my barbecue Bible series, so it's eight barbecue books in all. And, oh, so this uh, is part of the barbecue Bible. The barbecue barbecue Bible, by the way, for our listeners who don't know, it's in its tenth edition now. Is that correct? That is correct. Over At least, yeah, we just did a tenth anniversary edition, full color throughout. Four million copies. Now, think about that. Four, folks, four million copies. That is a lot of barbecue books. <laughs> well, uh, 70% of American households own grills, and uh, so uh, that's a lot of people. It is, and I will tell you a, a interesting story. I, you know, knowing that I was going to have you on the show, I was out visiting some friends at their um, beach house, and they do not cook. Okay, mm-hmm. they're Manhattanites with a very tiny kitchen. They don't cook, but you know, they go out to their beach house and they try to be cooks and maybe do a little grilling. They have four cookbooks on their kitchen counter. Three of them are your barbecue books. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> so there you go. You, you, you've made it to even to the, the people who don't cook. So everyone feels that they can be a barbecue chef, right? So you've trained people how to do it. Well, tell me, what, I know that um, you have traveled a lot over the years. How, what, made you, what made you seek out barbecue in all these countries? And tell me about your travels. Well, you know, uh, the book really stems from a, a, a very simple but profound realization, and that is uh, that uh, grilling barbecue are the world's most oldest uh, cooking methods, but they are also the most universal cooking methods. People grill in virtually every country on virtually every continent. However, um, they do it differently uh, in different cultures. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be fascinating and illuminating to travel around the world study and document how people uh, grill in different cultures, and then sort of try and figure out why and what we could learn from it back in the United States. Well, what I like about this book particularly is that rather than just giving a bunch of recipes and identifying the country, you really do give a little write-up of each country and kind of gives you a feel of the background of of the people and, and where the food's coming from. You know, I like to call this book my Trojan horse book. Uh, People buy it perhaps because of the recipes, but in fact, 40% of the book is text. Mm. And it tells the story of the history of barbecue. It tells the story of the culture of barbecue with profiles of 30 different countries and barbecue regions. There are profiles of the world's great grill masters. Uh, Each of the recipe headnotes is a sort of little travelogue. So... um, I really have tried to, uh, you know, tried to give you a complete immersion course in the culture of barbecue. Well, and it shows. I mean, it real, it is, it it really. Um, Thank it you. Is, it's an education. It is. Thank you. And I will tell people too that I, you, you may not remember, but I first met you when I was at the Food Network, and you weren't even doing barbecue then. I think it was your Miami Spice or your healthy one of your That's healthy right. series, right? Well, there was a series of high flavor, low fat books. You're absolutely right. That's it. And then right. uh, Healthy Latin, and then uh, Miami Spice, and. Then I got the call for barbecue. There you go. So, I mean, you come to it with, you know, looking at at other types of cooking and food as well, not just jumping onto the grill. Uh-huh. Thank <laughs> right? you. Uh, when in your travels around, what what um, country or had what or what country had the most interesting barbecue? Let me put it that way. Well, boy, there were so many, but uh, I think one of the greatest surprises for me was Cambodia. Now, I'd gone to Cambodia because I had heard that there was a carving of a 12th century barbecue on one of the temple walls uh, at a temple complex called Bayonne, and I was not disappointed. 
what was really astonishing was to walk out to the parking lot of the temple complex and find someone using exactly the same bucket grill, uh, exactly the same split stick uh, to hold the meat over the fire, and what were virtually the same seasonings 800 years later, with yeah. one big difference. Same and as that the is, Southeast Asian cooking did not have the chili high hellfire that we associate with it today. Uh, that was because the chili pepper was a New World food. That's right. It didn't arrive on the world barbecue scene uh, outside of the Americas uh, until the 15th century. Right. Interesting. Huh. And what makes the dishes, uh, the different dishes that you say maybe were your favorite, aside from the style? So you say it's the style of the barbecue and how they cook it. What about the flavors. What flavors stood out the most? Well, in Cambodia, I mean, an explosive mixture of aromatics like lemongrass, ginger, gallangale, chili peppers, uh, coriander uh, roots. Uh, and then overlaid on top of this is a kind of a sweet, salty, sour uh, flavor juxtaposition. And the sweetness comes from palm sugar and the acidity comes from uh, fresh lime or calamansi juice. Huh. And the saltiness comes from a very interesting uh, ingredient called fish sauce or fish paste, made with fermented anchovies. Uh, has a very uh, kind of off-putting uh, locker room odor, but the flavor is incredibly uh, rich, sonorous, um, Delicious. Pretty much the same way as they made it in ancient Roman times, too. Absolutely, right? yeah. uh, with a preparation called garum. Right. Interesting. And you and I might yeah. be the only pe- two people in North America talking about garum well, right now. <laughs> You'd I be surprised. It. On my show, it, it's probably more common on my show. But I love it. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I, I really was intrigued by a lot of the different types of, of um, things types of foods that that you included in the grill too which i think is another nice thing is that it's the book is organized according to the meats or the type of food and not just a region or a country mm-hmm. um and i noticed that you even had grilled crocodile in there well uh this was a recipe from a uh, a, a very well-known restaurant in nairobi kenya called carnivore probably the most famous restaurant on the african continent and, you know, I'm not about weird food for weirdness sake, you know, or the shock value, but when there is an ingredient, uh, an oddball meat that is eaten that's really kind of part of the barbecue culture, I felt it important to taste it and document it. So, for example, in Colombia, you find something called chiguero, which is like a giant guinea pig and tastes very much like a North Carolina pulled pork shoulder. Hmm. It's grilled over a eucalyptus wood fire. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, or throughout... Uh, about how large? Uh, is it about the same size as a... No, as a it's pair? actually the size of a small bear. Ah! Yeah, it's a big, 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 big guy. Pig. Right. Big, big guy. Uh, and it has a sort of a, a very rich, buttery flavor. Um, the small intestines of, uh, of lambs are enjoyed throughout Planet Barbecue. For example, in Uruguay, they make a dish called choto, where they kind of curl it up into a sausage and grill it. Hmm. Uh, and in Greece, they'll take the innards of lambs and uh, skewer them on a long spit and wrap the whole shebang in uh, uh, lamb's intestines and spit roast it. You can kind of think of it as haggis on a stick. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I can recall even um, in Italy where a lot of that is has fallen by the wayside, but 
out way out in the countryside, they still did a lot of lamb, a lot of lamb innards um, on the grill, and it it was a real um, taste treat, I might say. Absolutely. <laughs> when yeah. I first had that, you know, and of course yeah. the grill happened to be the fireplace inside the house in the main kitchen. But well, was... you raise you raise a very interesting uh, point, which is that. Um, uh, most North Americans think of grilling as an outdoor activity you do in summertime, but in many parts of the world, uh, grilling is something you do indoors in your fireplace. That's and right. Italy is sort of the poster child for indoor grilling. In fact, the ancient Romans called uh, an indoor grill that was positioned on a raised hearth, they called it the focus, and it became the focal point of the house. Mm-hmm. The hearth is the focal point of the house, and it gave us our word focaccia. Mm-hmm. It's when the bread falls into the fire between the gratings. <laughs> that's that's great, and it's interesting because now our, the kitchen, the kitchen which kind of was a small room that disappeared in the back, is now once again the center of. You know, we have we have our great rooms with the kitchen being, you know, right in the middle of the family room and in the center. I think it's wonderful. I think people are coming back to. Uh, to cooking and, and being around the fire. Absolutely. Yeah. And fire is what separates us from the beast, right? Hey. So. Well, we're the only animal that cooks. Uh, the adoption of fire to cook meat about 1.8 million years ago set us on an evolutionary path that uh, really resulted in the modern uh, thinking human being. That's right. That's right. Well, you certainly give us a lot to think about in your books. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk some more about some of the recipes that you've included. That good kind treat man bring you back home someday. Someday, baby, you ain't gonna worry my mind anymore. I that wind, that old chilly breeze, come blow. Hi, we're back, and we're talking with Stephen Reichlin, the uh, the well-known barbecue author of the Barbecue Bible series and his newest book, Planet Barbecue. Uh, and it's interesting because the, the music that we were listening to during the break, I mean, it's funny because I think Americans kind of take ownership of barbecue. They think that, ah, the American barbecue or the great out west barbecue, we're the ones, you know, it's the cowboys, we're the ones who invented it. Tr- not true at all, Right. Well, uh, our word barbecue is actually uh, a Caribbean Indian word. It comes from the Tainos who lived on the island of Hispaniola. Uh, it described a, uh, a sort of raised wooden barbecue grill. Is that barbacoa? Uh, is that... Positioned on upright posts over a smoky fire. Uh, it entered uh, the written word uh, about uh, 1526 publication of a book called The History of the West Indies by mm. a guy named uh, Fernando Gonzalo Oviedo y Valdez, who, by the way, was also the first person to describe the hammock, to uh, describe the canoe, to describe avocados and cornbread. All of these were Taino Indian inventions. 
Huh. I just I'm writing that down as you speak. So, <laughs> so don't worry. It's, you know, it's, a it's new been, source. I always like to see it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and was that barbacoa? Was that barbacoa? Yeah, yeah barbacoa. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. So and um, you know, and, and of course barbecue meaning just grilling over fire or actually long roasting cooking meat in any way over an open fire is, mm-hmm. is what we've come to know it as. Uh, what before? What I, one thing I forgot to, to clear up. You did not invent the beer can chicken. Come on, did you? Or did you? I did you? not. You no, did not. I, okay. I wish I had. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I wish I had. You know, that. I shouldn't have told anybody because everyone will just go on believing you did. And no, I that's hadn't okay. But <laughs> you know, I'm all about uh, truth and setting the record. But you. Say. But I mean, but, but look, I, what I did do is I brought it from the backwaters of uh, of Tennessee barbecue uh, into the American mainstream. That's right. We really do have to credit you with with popularizing it and, and bringing it to our attention and people i you know i can't tell you how many times i run into people and they think that they they have invented or they learned it from their friend and this is really great new invention right. <laughs> and it keeps you know it's cyclical every every few years someone's it brings it around again and says oh this brand new method <laughs> i know isn't that funny yeah but you've got a great line of of barbecue cookware out too and, and you even have a pan that don't you have a, a pan, a roaster that helps? To we that? have a roaster, yeah, that uh, actually comes with an, a, uh, a stainless steel sort of removable top beer can, as it were. So let's say if you wanted to make a red wine chicken, like I call it Coco Vallon, a can where you put red wine instead of beer in the can, mm-hmm. uh, you can do it uh, fruit juice, coffee, oh, uh, any flavored liquid. Oh, that's a great idea. That's, I'm about mm-hmm. to look for that in... Uh, in my local cookware shop. Yeah. Well, that's... Well, I mean, our, our website is uh, grillingforall.com. That's grilling for grilling all. Okay. Four is in the number four. Grilling for all. We'll get that on We'll get that on the website as well so people Fantastic. can see that. Yeah. Um, but there are any countries... I mean, I know when you're... When you're you, we were talking earlier about how people think of um, barbecue as being on a grill outside outdoors mm-hmm. but it, it is actually i mean open stoves even like mm-hmm. here in america in the colonial days that's the only mm-hmm. way to cook was the open stove mm-hmm. um but your travels must have taken you to i don't want to say the hinterlands but you weren't staying inside the cities you were going outside the cities mostly i would imagine right well it depends on the uh place in southeast asia for example barbecue is uh <laughs> very much an urban experience and on the street, right? <laughs> in food courts and sidewalk push from sidewalk push court carts in crowded cities like right. Bangkok and Jakarta, etc. On the other hand, in uh, South America, um, while you find great grill restaurants in the big cities, to really experience authentic barbecue, you need to go to uh, to a, a ranch in Argentina mm-hmm. or a finca in Brazil. Um, so. You know, this urban versus rural, that's also part of the barbecue experience. And, of course, in many parts of the world, a style of barbecue will begin in the countryside. And an enterprising young guy coming to make his fortune in the big city will open a push cart, which turns to a little tiny eatery, which turns into a restaurant, which turns into a restaurant chain. Uh, one great example of that, uh, a... Uh, a restaurant in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, called uh, uh, Sultan Ahmet. And uh, uh, the guy was an, uh, actually an Azeri grill master who came to make Hajj, uh, got stuck uh, by, grounded by World War I in Istanbul, opened a little push cart, and today it's one of the most famous restaurants in Istanbul. 
Huh. That's that's a wonderful story. That's great. And I, and I, I love this stuff. I love this stuff because, you know, unlike so many foods, barbecue, it's really completely woven into uh, our social fabric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, pig roasts and... and um and, you know, steer roast where everyone gathers around, you dig a pit, you watch the meat, you wait for two days you know, for mm-hmm. it to uh, to cook. That's It's a one. You're right. It is. Barbecue also, I always say barbecue has another meaning, and that is it's synonymous with a get-together or a party. You know, Absolutely. Let's, let's have a barbecue, right? Well, and this was the sense of uh, the word barbecue in George Washington's time. Mm-hmm. And by the way, George Washington was a major barbecue fan, huh. writes about it all the time in his uh, journals and diaries. Went to a barbecue in Alexandria, Virginia that lasted three days. Uh Uh, uh, But, uh, you know, for when I use the word barbecue as in planet barbecue, I'm talking about a piece of equipment, the so-called barbecue grill. I'm talking about a cooking method, uh, that is cooking meats low and slow indirectly with a lot of wood smoke. I'm talking about specific dishes like uh, dry rub ribs in Memphis or pulled pork shoulder in uh, North Carolina. I'm talking about a meal cooked and eaten outdoors, and I'm talking about a community celebration. Mm-hmm. All of those enter into my definition. Well, that's great. That's I think that's 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 wonderful, and that's what I like to hear. That's what I consider the whole the whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as methods, and you're saying it's you're talking about. Um, low and slow is there if there's one thing i mean some people like to do zero steak too you don't want to do that low and slow but what would be one of the more important tips that you would give people about barbecue when they're doing a a larger piece of meat well uh remember that patience carries the day okay (laughs) uh the larger the piece of meat in general the slower you cook it but if you're working with a tough cut like brisket uh, it's absolutely essential to keep your temperature under 250 uh, degrees and to uh, measure your cooking time in terms of half days. Right. <laughs> and uh, it, incidentally, uh, we have a monthly newsletter on my barbecuebible.com website, and the subject of the next newsletter is uh, brisket. So it's you know I always call brisket the holy grail of barbecue, uh, often pursued. Uh, rarely, uh, you know, perfection is rarely... Rarely, success is your... <laughs> well, it's funny, because I, I just... I, we, our family dinner last weekend, we had this long, lengthy discussion about about brisket. Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't realize it's all that, that connective tissue that just needs time to break mm-hmm. down, right? Mm-hmm. It's just... And it's when it does, it is wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, as far as some of the unusual methods that you encountered... Um, one that caught my eye, and it was in the uh, promo for the book, it was lamb on a shovel. Lamb, the infamous lamb on a shovel. Yeah, that's a technique used in the outback of Australia. Uh, why? Because people, uh, you know, operated under the most uh, primitive uh, conditions and may not have even had a grill grate, but found that if you uh, clean a shovel and sterilize it by, uh, by putting it over a campfire and then lay lamb chops on it, uh, over a wood campfire, you could grill the lamb chops on the shovel. Absolutely t- fantastic flavor, and huh. interestingly, a very different flavor than you'd get if you cook the lamb chops on the grill. Well, because I guess they stay in their juice, right? The juice stays on the shovel, and uh, and I mean, what what would give it? What's giving it the extra special flavor? Well, um, what happens is that the wood smoke curls around the uh, blade of the shovel, hmm. and you're actually kind of smoke. It's, it's sort of almost like a smoke sauté. 
And that's that's the technique. Oh, wonderful. That mm-hmm. sounds great. Any country that you went to, of course, why would you go? Just, okay, let's consider this the dumb question, but there are. Any country you went to where barbecue was not such a big deal, or they didn't do too much outdoor cooking? Well, uh, I, I, you know, a place like England, where there's really is no native indigenous grilling tradition. Uh, chalk it up to the weather. There are a few interesting grill restaurants now, but they're really one is a, a kind of a knockoff of a Japanese yakitori bar, and another is a knockoff of an American steakhouse. Huh. Um, probably the most interesting country that uh, has sort of less grilling than you'd expect would be China. And you'd figure that people would grill a lot in China because, you know, there's such a highly evolved culinary uh, system. But in fact, the grilling is pretty much restricted to uh, Muslim Chinese, and it's done as a street food, Uh, not a big grilling repertory. Huh, interesting. What about Germany? Well, Germany was one of the great surprises on the barbecue trail. Uh, and I went because uh, you know I have a number of correspondents on my uh, website who write me and send me photographs of traditional German grilling, and I found an extremely sophisticated and highly evolved and complex grilling tradition in Germany. Uh, grills that are unique in the world that have spinning or twirling grill grates, uh, preparations that are unique like uh, ham hocks marinated with uh, juniper berries and mugwort cooked on vertical rotisseries. Oh, that sounds intriguing. Uh, pork roasts, butterflied, stuffed with onions, tied up again, spit-roasted over beechwood fires. Uh, very, uh, e- even there's a kind of a classic street food called currywurst, which is uh, curried bratwurst. Hmm. And uh, the sauce, kind of an interesting story how the sauce came about. In fact, somebody wrote a novel called The Invention of Currywurst where they sort of describe how in post-war Germany it was reduced to a barter system. Women bartered this for that and that for this and wound up with uh, a case of ketchup and a case of curry powder and dropped the box on her way to her system apartment. <laughs> I love those two, stories. <laughs> two ingredients mixed. She uh, pulled the little glass shards out of the uh, ketchup and... Uh, and that was. And there we have it. There right? you have it. <laughs> it's like tart tatin. You know, she right. tripped on her way to the table. Right? That's right. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you brought up. Um, Japan and grilling. Mm-hmm. and my, uh, my birthplace, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, uh-huh. my goodness. I didn't realize that. Yep. Yep. Well, is that then maybe that's reason why you were invited to compete on Iron Chef in Japan. Now, not too many Americans have done this, and you won. Uh, yep. It was, uh, listen. Not the American version of Iron Chef. but fortune. This was, this was uh, the I, Japanese version. I could version. not pretend right. to be as... Highly qualified as the Iron Chef, but <laughs> I think the novelty factor of having uh, having an American uh, doing uh, American style grilling was uh, you know was kind of came as a great shock and surprise. Yeah, and, well, that um, was that was wonderful, and that was before I, I think that wasn't that before the time that um, Iron Chef was was brought and modified for the American version. It was, yeah, and uh, I uh, was lucky enough to win, and I hung up uh, hung up my tongues. Shortly there. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you can at least wear the badge. You know, <laughs> that's great. Well, it has really been. I, I mean, just um, there are so many things in the book that I think are uh, interesting and educational, mm-hmm. and also very tasty. One and even a dessert. The beautiful picture that comes up if you. Um, Oh, I don't know whether it's on if you Google it or on Amazon or whatever. When one of the places that you know in researching. The beautiful picture of the pineapple. Yes. 
Oh, what and I thought, what a what a simple but wonderful. I mean, yes, we all grill pineapple, we grill fruits, peaches, and whatever else, but this just looked it looked like a a novelty confection. Beautiful. Where, it, it's, and, a, it's a spectacular dessert, absolutely traditional, and you um, you find it at uh, what are called churrascarias, uh, rotisserie joints uh, in southern Brazil. And describe it a little bit for the listeners. Well, basically, it's a whole pineapple uh, threaded crosswise on a rotisserie spit, and you sprinkle the outside with cinnamon sugar. I paint it with butter first to help the cinnamon sugar mm-hmm, soak. Good. Uh, the whole trick is to spit roast it over a really hot fire so that you actually caramelize the sugar uh, before the, pine- the pineapple flesh gets a chance to get soft. Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, and the way that it was carved to remove the ice, it just had this spiral running around That's it. That's right, that, right. Oh, it was just, it was beautiful. So everything is in here from soup to nuts, if you will. And I encourage people to take a look at Planet Barbecue. If you think you knew everything about barbecue, ha! You haven't begun to read. So um, thank you, Stephen, so much for, for uh, sharing with us all the information. And I think that you've got enough information there for another few shows that we could do. And I, once again, the, um, the book is called Planet Barbecue. And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio. I'd like to thank our producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener. And join us again on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thank you.